Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, in our last podcast, we discussed the rescue of Jim and the three dirty owls from their lifeboat. And uh, uh, now we were also able to move on to Chapter 12. Now, today, what I want to do is I want to launch right into the facts on how the French gunboat rescued the Patna. And so I'm sure we talked about this last time. Now, remember, nobody died but George. (laughs) And we also find out a little bit later that George was simply a boarding officer. So he did not have, he's like a ticket taker at a theater. So it's not like he was, uh, uh, you know, the big guy. Anyway, thankfully my partner literature is here with me again today in the studio. Welcome back, Deborah. Thank you. Uh, and I never want to forget that my producer, Gabe, is also with us in the studio. And remember, everyone, I'm really, really building this up. Gabe will be coming on a panel with me before we finish the novel. And this is a novel that just seems like it keeps on going. You know, so, so, all right. I also want to give you a little word of instruction with these, this next section that we're we're going to uh, handle. I'm I'm actually up to chapter 19, so I've really pushed myself forward. But anyway, here's what you need to understand. Over the next couple of chapters, the reading does stay a little bumpy. Now, why is that? Because Conrad continues the story of the Patna and Jim from encounters he has with people he meets long after Jim's inquiry. And so so and sometimes it's like, I think like you know, maybe he should have written a story about a time machine because he goes forward and he goes backward and he goes forward and backward. And so I will be happy to point this out to you as we go through this. So um, last time when we, uh, we ended, uh, I want to I just go to uh, page 103 and uh, uh, just kind of remind you some of the beautiful writing here in the book. Some of it, I think, it gets a little long-winded, and I can say that because he's dead, <laughs> and I've never written anything in my life worth being, so, so I mean, in terms of novels or anything like that. So, uh, uh, page, the top of page 103, it's, uh, I love this, the personification of the Patna as a forsaken woman, and this is how we ended it, and uh, I just wanted to start out with this today. uh, He says at the top of page 103, it would have said, meaning the Patna, I am here, still here, and what more can the eye of the most forsaken of human beings say? But she turned her back on them as if in disdain of their fate. She had swung round, burdened, to glare stubbornly at the new danger of the open sea, which she so strangely survived to end her days in breaking up yard as if it had been her recorded fate to die obscurely under the blows of many hammers. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, do, I do like that quote. And uh, that's exactly what happened to the Patna. 
is uh, they finally got it into uh, into dock, and then they just beat the daylights out of it, and tore it apart. So, uh, but there's also a, bot- a, a quote at the bottom of the page, and I think it's this is something that uh, we ought to think about in the next couple as we read through to the end of the book. And uh, one of the, one of the things that, that Conrad tells us here is this Patna story just would never die. <laughs> it just would never die. He goes on to say there at the very bottom of the page, it says, Indeed, this affair, I may notice in passing, had an extraordinary power of defying the shortness of memories and the length of time. It seemed to live with a sort of uncanny vitality in the minds of men. And so, uh, so anyway, now... Now he goes in to tell us the details about um, how the French, and uh, that's probably discouraging to anybody that was, uh, let's say, British, <laughs> but the French had to save the Patna. All right. So uh, uh, anyway, it goes on there down in the middle of the page 103. It says, uh, it says, but the immediate future brought it about at 9 o'clock the next morning, a French gunboat homeward bound from Rion. I guess that's how you say it, Réunion? Réunion, yeah. Réunion? Mm-hmm. Réunion, but just look at Ray, yeah. Yeah, well, they were just doing it in French, so anyway. <laughs> I tried. I failed, but I tried. Anyway, the report of her commander was public property. He had swept a little off his, out of his course to ascertain what was the matter with the steamer floating dangerously by the head upon a still and hazy sea. There was an ensign, Union Down, flying at her, at her main gaff. The serang had sense enough to make a signal of distress at daylight. So, so here, uh, if you get the story, is I mean, if we, we go back and say it here, the the uh, the skipper and his two engineers, they wanted to jump ship because they thought for sure it was going to sink. So here it's it's getting daylight. The ship hasn't sunk, and. Uh, uh, the French actually see it in the distance, and they come up close to uh, to see if they can help out. But but I think it's interesting here. He goes on to say, but the cooks were preparing the food in the cooking boxes forward as usual. So so here's all this furor over jumping off the boat, and <laughs> they wake up the next morning and they just start cooking breakfast for everyone like they always do. Yeah, it's really a funny picture, isn't it? It's it's yes. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, all, all this all this you know, fear and commotion the night before, and then the next morning, just business as usual, it seems like, almost. Right, yeah. right. Uh, so so the, the uh, cooks were cooking. The decks were packed as close as a sheep pen now. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting. There were people perched all along the rails, jammed on the bridge in a solid mass. Hundreds of eyes stared, and a sound was heard when the gunboat uh, ranged abreast as if all the multitude of lips had been sealed by a spell. So... <laughs> So that that's not a sound. They were just so quiet. They're just standing yeah, there. Yeah, well, they're mm-hmm. they're pilgrims. They're mm-hmm. they're holy pilgrims. On they had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, here's just what four guys, and they, remember that the other two at the mat at the uh, s- the steering people stayed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like four people were caught in this turmoil, and uh, but but it's it's like they were spellbound. You know, and. Uh, um, here, I, I think there's some really humorous things here as well. It says the Frenchman hailed and could get no intelligible reply. And, af- and after ascertaining through his binoculars that the crowd on deck did not look plague-stricken. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here, I guess at that time, 
you know, they're probably worships that got plague stricken. Right. You see, you'd have to be careful, especially if they're being quiet and there are so many of them. Yeah, this is like <laughs> pre-COVID-19, you know. And so so there are, I wonder how many people look today to see if there's COVID-19 on the ship that needs rescued. You know, I don't know. Anyway, but it didn't look plague stricken. They decided to send a boat in. So two officers came aboard, listened to the serang, tried to talk with the Arab, couldn't make a head or tail of it, but of course the nature of the emergency was obvious enough. They were also very much struck by discovering a white man dead and curled up peacefully on the bridge. Now, you could go ahead and read that for, if you want. For entre gay par ce cadavre. Yeah. So, so I, I think what's really hilarious, and I'll just say this to all of you out there listening, that it seems like the most interesting thing on the ship was George. Yeah. And he yeah. was dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he was a ticket taker, <laughs> you know. But it seemed like everybody was just just uh, absolutely fascinated by it. All right. Do you have any comments? They're curious as to why this man was dead, you know, laying on the deck and, you know, everyone People else. peaceful. Is, yeah, it's peaceful, right. So, <laughs> yes, what happened? How, was, how did he die? There was no blood, mm-hmm. you know, there was no murder. Anyway, um, but anyway, I, I just think that's funny that, that uh, poor George, the ticket taker, was the main, the main view. Okay, so, so obviously uh, the French... Uh, got together, got in haste. They decided to uh, get two large ropes. And, of course, uh, Conrad calls them housers, but that's what that is, H-A-W-S-E-R-S, or two large ropes. And uh, this, I guess we could skip over to, um, well, yeah, we could skip over to page 105. Um, There's a lot um, that, that goes on in here. Um, and we'll probably come back to this just just uh, briefly. But uh, anyway, they, they got these ropes, and they decided that they were going to have to steer it from the stern in the back because they didn't want to touch the, the front end of the boat because they didn't think the bulkhead would last. And here it's lasted for how long? But anyway, they saw that as a problem. And then also, um, I don't know how big a gunboat is, and I... I'm pretty sure the patent would have been much bigger. But it says there at the top of page 105 um, that uh, under the circumstances, they towed from the stern, which is not so foolish since the steering and the maneuver, and the maneuver eased the strain on the bulkhead, whose state, he expounded with solid glibness, demanded the greatest care. And so, so uh, anyway, that, that's, that's the story that you need to know, that they were rescued by the uh, the French gunboat. But how do we know that? That's the point now. How do we know that? And, and this is where I think it gets a little confusing um, because how does how does he learn about this? And the, the thing is, 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 is essentially we have to realize that what Marlowe is talking about here is he meets this French sailor years later after the inquiry. And the French sailor was on the ship, and he gives him the details that he hasn't really heard yet, even in the inquiry. And so, so this is where it could get really confusing for the readers out there. So on page 104, uh, you know, we come back, and this is where he meets the Frenchman. And uh, if, if we just, um, uh, let's say, I think if we go to the middle of page 104... It's, he says, I had never seen that Frenchman before, and at the end of an hour we had done with each other 
for life. He did not seem particularly talkative either. He was a quiet, massive chap in a creased uniform sitting drowsily over a tumbler full of uh, some dark liquid. His shoulder straps were a bit tarnished. His clean-shaved cheeks were large and sallow. He looked like a man who would be given to taking snuff, don't you know? So that's, that's, a, that's a judgment. Anyway, so so here Marlowe can make judgments. And and you get the feeling that he wasn't really fond of Frenchmen or French sailors. I won't say what he did, but the habit would have been fitted that kind of man. It all began by his handing me a number of, of home news, which I didn't want. Across the marble table, I said, merci. He exchanged a few apparently innocent remarks, and suddenly, before I knew how it had come about, we were in the midst of it. And he was telling me how much they had been intrigued by that corpse. And it's poor George. I mean, he's intrigued by the corpse. He said, it turned out that he had been one of the boarding officers. So that's how we know we know from the Frenchman that George was a boarding officer. All right. So, so essentially, um, uh, Marlowe gets details about what happened on the Patna from this French officer. And... Uh, um, you know, it, it doesn't look like they really do have a lot of association with each other. You know, it, it's not like they became fast friends. It's like there was a certain amount of respect just because they're both both uh, in, this, in the, the sea, seamen. It says, in the establishment there we sat, uh, one could get a variety of foreign drinks which are kept for the visiting naval officers, and he took a sip of the dark medical-looking stuff, which probably was nothing more than the, more nasty than... I can't even say that. Casillo. Casillo. And what is that? Do you know? I don't know. What's low? Low Low is water. Water. Okay. And glancing with one eye into the Mm -hmm. tumbler, shook his head slightly. uh, And he's he's saying, uh, Impossible de comprendre. Impossible to understand. You you understand. Okay. You you see. You see. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so we know Mm -hmm. that Conrad spoke French fluently. So he's just showing off for everybody right now so anyway he said uh, I could very easily conceive how impossible it had been for them to understand nobody in the gunboat knew enough English to get a hold of the story told by the serang there was a good of noise too around the two officers they crowded they crowded upon us there was a circle around that dead man and uh, you know (laughs) again George I I guess when they say the circle around them was, was all the pilgrims you know they were wondering what happened to George that sounds like a good story. You can make a good story, good short story out of that. What happened to George? It says there was a circle around the dead man. Uh, one had to attend to most to the most pressing. These people were beginning to agitate themselves. A mob like that, don't you see? He interjected with philosophic indulgence. As to the Balkhood, he had advised his commander that the safest thing was to leave it alone. And so, so it seemed like this uh, French seaman. You know, had some standing. Obviously, he he was uh, some had some knowledge of uh, what they needed to do. So the the thing uh, for all of your readers out there, if you if you look at this, they have this they have this incredible conversation, and uh, I think uh, Deborah, one of the most interesting things about this section, there's a lot of conversations between them. And uh, again, yeah, I, I think you should read it, um, and I've read it several times to understand it. But this this French officer, he stayed on the ship 
as they were towing it for 30 hours. And guess what? He didn't drown. He didn't drown. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't sink. No. And so, so if you think about this, in, in, in some ways, it's, I think it's part of Conrad's genius that he brings this in, that, that here, what, the, the skipper, his two engineers, and Jim, uh, who believes that they forced him to, they all jumped. And this French officer stays on the ship for 30, 30 hours. So, so uh, uh, and, and the, the reason why he said that's good is that it was comforting to them that they had an officer on the ship, <laughs> you know. So anyway, I think that's that's really an, an irony there. And so I, I wonder, like with Conrad, if he's not just, um, you know, if he wasn't just thinking all this up. Notice what uh, what Marlowe says to him. This is the middle of page 106. He says, you did? And he's talking about the 30 hours, I exclaimed. Still gazing at his hands, he pursed his lips a little, but this time made no hissing sound. It was judged proper, he said, lifting his eyebrows dispassionately, that one of the officers should remain to keep an eye open, uh, he sighed idly, for communicating by signals with the towing ship, do you see, and so on. For the rest, it was my opinion, too, we made our boats ready to drop over, and I also in the ship took measures. One has done one's possible. It was a delicate position. 30 hours so 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 the point is is the officer had to be on ship because he could communicate back to the french ship you know i guess however they did that maybe they didn't speak french maybe they had lights or whatever but anyway he he could communicate back then also you have to remember that the gunboat was probably not near as big as the patna and they were tied to the patna now with ropes and so they had two guys with um uh, axes to cut the ropes in case the patent did decide to sink. So, so when when you put it, I, I think when you analyze this whole thing, is that that you could, I mean, if you go back, the skipper wasn't willing to do that. You know, analyze the two engineers wanted to just jump, and Jim was so caught up in his own imagination he couldn't analyze because the ship wasn't going down. You know, so. So, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of things there. And I think one of the other things that the French uh, officer brings out, that uh, thankfully the ocean stayed flat as a table the whole time they were towing it. So, so the, the, uh, the sea storm, all of that, it happened. And, and you can see it's like all these, all these events together really put Jim in, the, you know, in this really crisis situation. And so, so I think that's that's really kind of fascinating. All right. So, uh, anything else before I go in there? No. Okay. Well, one other thing that I think is really ironic—an irony—and uh, uh, you know, this is this is typical French. This is page one hundred seven. He was really proud when they they got the you know the patent back uh, into her, um, you know, into the, into the dock, I guess. The Frenchman is so proud of the fact that there was the other ship. There, there was an Indian mariner uh, steamer, and there was a man of war there, and they got 800 passengers off those off the Patna in 25 minutes. That's amazing. Yeah, 25 minutes. Yeah, That's 25 true. minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's like mm-hmm. he had his clock. Mm-hmm. He was the, the Frenchman was clocking it. So. So, I mean, the reason I bring that up is, remember, Jim kept saying over and over in his mind, 
800 passengers, seven boats. 800 passengers, seven boats. So between the two ships, they obviously had more than seven boats. And they got everybody off. And nobody died but who? George. George. <laughs> so poor George. Mm. He died. Um, yeah. So so anyway, um, it, it's kind of like at the bottom paragraph. It's almost like the second paragraph down. Um Marlowe talks about the Frenchman. He says, with downcast eyes and his head tilted slightly on one side, he seemed to roll knowingly on his tongue, the savor of a smart bit of work. <laughs> so, so he's he's like he's savoring the fact that it only took twenty five minutes to get them safe. And so so, but but the point is, you know, as as these discussions go on, there there are people that have um, like the Frenchman. Um, he made judgments about Jim. He made judgments about attitudes. I mean, they, and then the story just kept getting passed and passed and passed. So, um, uh, uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> let's just skip down now to everybody. Let's go to chapter 13. And, uh, you know, the, the French are the heroes, you know, that really puts, you know, everybody that was on the Patna uh, in, in really bad straits but Jim really is the one that suffered most of all because the other guys ran had run he says uh, after these words this is chapter 13 starting on page 107 it's after these words and without a change of attitude he so to speak submitted himself passively to a state of silence um, oh I, I did uh, I did forget I, I want, don't want to forget this this is totally French that uh, they would serve him dinner on the Patna but he was upset there was no wine. <laughs> That's the French. I mean, they have to have wine with their dinner. And so, so I, I can see Conrad having fun, fun with this, making, just making jabs at French seamen. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, it, it's, it's interesting how he breaks the chapter. So, so this guy is really kind of chubby. You know, he's, uh, he's kind of like a has-been seaman, although uh, we find out later he's He's uh, third in command, so he's not that 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 uh, uh, let's say off base. But uh, uh, there he says he takes God's name in vain. Bottom of the page, it says how time passes. And I, the the thing is, this is probably I thought one of the most interesting chapters. It's totally philo- philosophical and it's totally Conrad. You know, and it's like you would almost say, okay, what is this doing in the book about? <laughs> you know the Patna, but anyway, um, and, and again, everybody, everybody out there, if you if you really want to appreciate um, Conrad and his writing, you really need to read this chapter and study it, because there's so much in here, and uh, the the uh, the Frenchman all of a sudden realizes, you know, he's spending too much time on this, and uh, he says, "How time passes." This is top of page 108. Now, listen to what Marlowe says. Nothing could have been more commonplace than his remark, but its utterance coincided for me with a moment of vision. And so, so you know, here, I think only Conrad could listen to this and say, wow, this is a moment of vision. You know, how time passes, and it's really true. And even we talk about this from time to time. He said, it's extraordinary how we go through life with eyes half shut, with dull ears, with dormant thoughts. Perhaps it's just as well, and it may be that 
it is this very dullness that makes life to the incalculable majority so supportable and so welcome. <laughs> so, so in other words, I mean, I, I don't know what you think about that, but I think what he's saying is Jim didn't live his life that way. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that he most didn't people, keep his eyes shut. Yeah, right. most people, they just get through life. That's how they get through life. Um, so things don't bother them. They with dull ears and you know eyes half shut. You don't see everything. You just you just get through day to day. Whereas Jim wasn't like that. Yeah, I was just mm-hmm. reading a review and and uh, of of uh, Lord Jim and some of Comrade's other books, and they said he's the only writer that can get you to think of something like this on nearly every page. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's something like this to just to just grab your attention. Now this has nothing to do with Jim. Well, I think it does, but it, but in some ways, though, you can't just stop reading. He says, perhaps it's just as well, and it may be that that it is this very dullness that makes life. Oh, I re- already read that, didn't I? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, there can be, be. Nevertheless, there can be but a few of us who had never known one of these rare moments of awakening when we see, hear, understand ever so much everything in a flash before we can fall back into our agreeable uh, somnolence. How do you say that now? Somnolence. Somnolence, there we go. I raised my eyes when he spoke, and I saw him as though I had never seen him before. I saw his chin sunk on his breast, the clumsy folds of his coat, his clasped hands, his motionless pose, so curiously suggestive of his having been simply left there. Time had passed indeed. It had overtaken him and gone ahead. It had left him hopelessly behind with a few poor gifts, the iron-gray hair, the heavy fatigue of the tanned face, two scars, a pair of tarnished shoulder straps, one of those steady, reliable men who are the raw material of great reputations, one of those uncounted lives are buried without drums and trumpets under the foundations of a monumental successes. So, so that uh, Conrad's the only one I know could come up with that by looking at a fat French guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know how time passes, but it is true. I mean, we've talked about that. I mean, yeah, uh, we've been married forty-seven years. Where did it go? You know, our daughters—they're you know, getting old. <laughs> you know, they're—they're they're, uh, pushing fifty, and I remember pushing fifty. I didn't want to talk about it. You know, but they—they. They, uh, Anyway, but it, it d- does turn out that he, he still had a pretty good job. It says, I am now third lieutenant of the Victorus. She was the flagship of the French Pacific Squadron at the time. So uh, uh, anyway, but, but I, we, we don't have time to go through all the discussion. The discussion does not end there. It keeps going. And uh, uh, he goes on on page 109, and I think we have time to get this in before the end of the program. It says, in in anyone else, it might have been an evidence of boredom, a sign of indifference, but he, in his occult way, managed to make his immobility appear profoundly responsive <laughs> and as and as full of valuable thoughts as an egg is of meat. <laughs> That's funny. What he said at last was nothing more than very interesting. Uh, he says, before I get over my disappointment, he added, but as if speaking to himself, that's it, that is it. His chin seemed to sink lower on his breast, his body to weigh heavier on his seat. I was about to ask him what he meant when a sort of preparatory tremor passed over his whole person, 
as, as a faint ripple may be seen upon the stagnant water before the wind is felt. And so that poor young man ran away with the others, he said, with grave tranquility. And so, so there he's, uh, this Frenchman uh, knows about Jim now after talking with Marlowe, but still hadn't heard about the Patna anyway. I mean, he was there on the Patna. And he said, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 he was really sad for him that he had mm-hmm. to go through it. At, at the bottom of the page, it does say he, he had made out the point at once. So it was kind of like Marlowe says yeah. that's, that's like the main point then. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. his main point. Mm-hmm. But then notice at the bottom of that page that Marlowe says, and suddenly I began to admire the discrimination of the man. Uh, that's what you said. He had right. made out the mm-hmm. point at once. Mm-hmm. He got, uh, he did get hold of the only thing I cared about. I felt as though I were taking professional opinion on the case. His imperturbable and mature calmness of calmness was that of an expert in the possession of the facts, and to whom one's perplexities are Miller, child's play. Ah, the young, the young. He said indulgently, after all, one uh, does not die of it. Die of what, I asked swiftly, of being afraid. He elucidated the meaning and sipped his drink. And so, so uh, uh, that's, that's a whole other subject right there. But uh, um, I think he's summing up, Jim was afraid. He didn't die of it. You don't die of fear. And uh, there's a lot more to say there. So, But uh, as this always seems to happen to us, we are out of time for today's program. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah and I will continue to discuss uh, the uh, discussions leading up to Jim's final day at his inquiry. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a good copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. And so until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com